It's time for the Talent Talk Radio Show, brought to you by People G2, a nationwide leader in background checks and employment screening solutions. People G2 gives their clients access to the best human capital management and due diligence tools available. They are dedicated to helping their clients with all of their people-related decisions. To learn more, go to www.peopleg2.com. Talent Talk centers on the topics of talent recruitment and management, leadership development, company culture, and employee engagement. These are all timely topics for CEOs, entrepreneurs, HR professionals, and business leaders. We hope that as you tune in to listen each week, whether to the live broadcast or to the podcast on iTunes or iHeartRadio, that you hear something you can take away that will help you grow and impact your career in a positive way. And now... Here's the host of the Talent Talk Radio Show, the founder and CEO of People G2, Chris Dyer. Good afternoon, and thank you for tuning in here to Talent Talk. It's Tuesday, and uh, two great guests lined up today, and can't wait to dive in and have a great conversation with them today. Was off last week unexpectedly, ran off to Boston, and had the opportunity to do some cool stuff with uh, becoming a certified scrum master, and maybe we'll get to that at some other future show, but... Let's go ahead and dive into today's show. Um, Just in case you're maybe a newbie to this and haven't heard one of the shows in the past, um, basically I have this incredible opportunity to meet some really cool people, some inspiring leaders all the time at different conferences, through LinkedIn, um, by referral, whatever it may be. And so I thought it would be a lot better instead of me asking them 100 questions that only I get the answers to. We bring them onto a show, we have a conversation and allow you the opportunity to listen in on, on some of the topics that you're maybe um, thinking about, that you're interested in, and, and maybe maybe give you something that you can use down the road in your own career. Uh, the show is live every Tuesday, 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, and it can be accessed where most people actually pick it up. It's not live, they actually get it later on through iTunes or iHeartRadio, it can be heard there. Um, you know, For the last several years, we've been averaging... You know, about 10,000 people a day downloading a podcast uh, on one of the two platforms. So uh, that ends up being, you know, kind of millions of you kind of coming in. We really appreciate that, uh, the regular attendance of the show. We'd love to hear your feedback, get your questions. Um, anything you have to say on Twitter, you can do that by uh, sending it to at PeopleG2 and use that hashtag talent talk, all one word. My producer, Mike, keeps an eye on that during the show while he's live, live tweeting it as well and uh, feeds me any good questions that come in or anything we can use. All right, so my guest today will include uh, Celine Ford, uh, Chief People Strategist for uh, People Innovators, and then uh, Sandy Mobley, the author of Juicy Work uh, and CEO of The Learning Advantage. So Sandy will join me at the second half of the show, but let's go ahead and get to my first guest, uh, Celine Ford. Uh, Celine, welcome to the show. Hey, Chris. Thanks so much for having me on. So my pleasure. So why don't you tell everyone a little bit about yourself, uh, your, your your abridged uh, life story, and of course what you're doing over with People Innovators. Yeah, so I didn't really have a traditional entrance into the HR organizational development community. It was only six years ago that I really found my passion for organizational and leadership development. And originally I had been working in sales, had an amazing mentor, and uh, he really pushed me hard. His mentor was Peter Drucker, who's known as the founding father of modern-day management, really pushed him to live an extraordinary life, and then 
I was blessed to be able to have uh, Dr. Hiram Willis coach me and help me recognize my own leadership and, and passion for organizational behavior and leadership development. So six years ago, quit my sales job and started studying organizational behavior at University of Southern California and founded People Innovators at that time. So I've been consulting lots of different organizations and um, sometimes they need HR help and, and lots of times they need leadership development support. You know, not that it's a completely bizarre sort of change, but you don't really hear of a lot of people going from sales into more of a human resources related field. Uh, I mean, both are, you are thinking about what uh, what might motivate people, you might try to figure people out, but maybe for different reasons. So maybe before we kind of get to the next uh, question, you know, do, do you see similarities there? Do you feel like there was a natural change for you or was it just... You know, you were good at sales, it was easy to make money, and then you didn't realize what your passion really was until later. Um, and they both sort of apply. You're exactly right. A lot of the principles of human motivation, human behavior apply to both fields. But the reason why I got into sales was because I put myself through college and had student loans. And a friend of mine was a sales recruiter and said, you know, Celine, you're the hardest person, hardest working person I know. You'd be amazing in sales. And I thought, wow, that'd be a great way to pay back my student loans and um, as fast a time as possible. But then once I had reached that goal, I wanted a bigger purpose in my life. And because I was working in sales, I got to work inside a lot of different companies. I think at the time I had 200 clients. And so I, one problem that I saw in all of my companies and in the companies that I directly worked for were disengaged employees, people who weren't happy with their work, people who were disgruntled or just resigned. And um, I realized, oh, this is a problem. These people are going home. They're not just disengaged with work. They're going home and they're disengaged with their children. And then their children are disengaged with school. So I thought that I'd be able to have the biggest impact by being able to tackle this problem and um, love, you know, the Gallup State of the Workforce report because of its statistics, 70% of people are demotivated with their job, and that really resonates with me because as a salesperson, the people I was calling on, that's what I noticed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's um, – and I don't know if you have the – Gallup just released its latest 250-page mega document, which I'm only 50 pages through now. Um, so I'm kind of really curious as to what their most recent numbers might say. Have we gotten a little bit better or not? But – I think ultimately the general consensus is we have a lot of really disengaged employees, and that's an important thing for us to truly be focused on. Uh, maybe can you talk exactly. about how you use data to enhance what your uh, the way companies improve their employee engagement? Right, and there's data at different levels. So, you know, the Gallup Workforce Report is a piece of data that says 70% of employees are disengaged with their work, and they attribute 85% of that to management. And some other statistics on our data points at the company level are you can look at retention and t- turnover statistics or absenteeism. Uh, engagement surveys are a great way to gauge uh, how employees are feeling uh, in the workplace. And then also, if you want to look at operating performance, you can look at sales revenue um, by employee number. So there's a lot of different data points and what's amazing is even small companies who aren't collecting this type of data have basic 
observations of you know and, and can get insights into the company so if you notice that you know people are taking extra long lunches you know like why aren't they inspired to you know take shorter lunches i love my job so it doesn't feel like work so i don't feel like i need to take one hour two hour long lunches so you can get just basic data through observation in a workplace and um or you can rely on all the fancy data tools that are now available in hr so, so you have this data then, and, and you're kind of talking about maybe, I don't know if we call it soft data or not, right? There's things you can observe, which are different than maybe a survey or something a little bit uh, more specific. But once you get those data points, how do companies take that and really kind of shift that into finding ways to help them reach their full potential, increase their productivity, maybe influence profits, or the other end of the spectrum, you know, maybe it's finding the people that need to go, right, that aren't, aren't in the right seat and there's nothing you can do about it but, but to find somebody better. So how do companies start to do that? Well, so you take the data and you, you build a strategy based off of what the goals are. And for me, I think passion is a big one. So there's disengaged employees who just aren't passionate about what they're doing so, yeah, maybe they need to be coached out of the organization so that the organization can operate at a level of, you know, high performance. Or maybe there's, you know, people who aren't feeling inspired because there's a lack of leadership. And in those instances, putting a plan around leadership development and training um, could be really successful. And then building a plan for employee communications and a lot of it ultimately comes down to leadership development because no matter what the problem is in the company that's leading to disengaged employees, it usually comes down from the top. So it's building a strategy around what the problem is that's identified in the employee engagement surveys or any other, you know, data that you're getting if it's retention and turnover statistics and um, building a process to turn that around. So if you have people who are disengaged, how can you increase employee engagement? You have to really get to the root of what's causing, if it's bad management, which Gallup believes to think that's most of the problem, how can we, you know, develop an amazing leadership development program for our managers? Yeah, and it seems like, you know, that's usually, I think you mentioned, most people who leave, it's they're leaving because of their manager. And so, um, and then the other group of people are just maybe in the wrong job. They maybe went into the job for the money or for the security, maybe like the company, but then their actual work is maybe not that engaging for them. So have you seen opportunities or successes where companies have been able to take people who have good potential, who have a you know, or maybe valuable to the organization and maybe find a different place in the organization for them where they're going to be more engaged? Or is it a matter of just identifying those people and coaching them out? No, absolutely. And it just depends on the size of the organization. So organizations that are smaller and more flexible might be able to either create positions or move people around. It's, it's not always the case if, you know, someone is in a like, take me, for example, sales role, and um, now my passion is organizational 
development and there's not an organizational development team, maybe the best decision is for that person to leave and you could get someone who's passionate about, about sales. So there's always going to be natural attrition, and I don't think that that's good or bad. And, um, you know, coaching people, even if it means for them to leave the organization, but if it's for them to find their passion, is always going to be um, a better alternative. Right. Well, a lot of times you on the show to, we talk about... You don't want to keep people for the sake the, of retention. Right, right. I was going to say, um, you know, what we talk about a lot of times is the that, that end process. We're talking about um, disengagement at the end or what to do with them at the end. But very often um, people maybe sort of overlooked the beginning. So, you know, you have a new employee. They have this great excitement about their job. Um, and that really begins at the onboarding process. So I'm curious what you feel are some of the keys to having a successful onboarding process that really, you know, encourages new people, new employees to feel that, they can be a part of the role, that they can be on the right track to be engaged and not maybe start off on the wrong foot. Absolutely. The employee experience really starts at the recruiting stage, and it's just so important because it's going to bias how they forever see the organization. So I think it starts with having passionate people in those roles. So if, if someone's going to be in charge of creating onboarding training and execution, like is that their passion? Because then, however, like their intention of creating the program is going to be infused into the entire experience. Secondly, people remember things that have a strong emotional tie to it. So I think creating an onboarding process that's fun because people are all born to be curious and creative and also to create, you know, connection with other people. So how much does an onboarding process incorporate, you know, natural human desires for connection and, and being creative into an onboarding process? And are there some ways that people can, can, can practically do that? I mean, you know, I'm wondering if there's things that you're seeing that your clients are doing that you've done personally. Well, definitely. I think um, instead of, you know, when a new hire comes on board and has 20 hours of training to go through, it's not sticking them in a room by themselves with a computer and, you know, <laughs> put these headphones right. on and watch these videos, but it's, let's, be interactive. Let's create fun games, you know, that pique people's curiosity and and help them learn in new and interesting ways. Yeah, that's a that's a great way. And a lot of times we get busy. We have you know all these things going on. We have our own work to get done, and somebody new comes in the door, and to take that time to really help them get off on the right foot is. You know, it sounds like the right idea. It sounds like a great thing to do, but you know, it's not always easy for everybody to to stop what they're doing and, and to really make that happen, despite how important it may be. So, it, it's certainly a good reminder. That decision to either spend that time creating an amazing onboarding experience, you know, about connection and creativity, is a decision, and and every decision that you either do or do not make as an organization communicates to that employee, the emphasis you're putting on the experience and uh, just employees in general. So whether you're making a decision to do it or not, that's 
a decision in itself that speaks volumes about you as an employer. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's something that really has to come, I guess, from throughout the entire organization because maybe that's important to the CEO, but is that going to be important to that middle manager? Are they going to remember to to take the time to do that? Is that something that will happen on a consistent basis? It's a, it's a, it's a pretty big um you know, an impact on the employee, and yet it's a probably a, a maybe almost a cultural norm whether or not that's going to happen or not. So it's really an interesting, probably something that companies really need to start thinking about. Um, I noticed that you had mentioned that um, a strength of yours was building peak performing teams. So maybe you could talk a little bit about what it takes to get an organization to build that type of a team. We, it's easy to put four or five people together to do work, but how do you make them a peak performing team? Right. And, you know, every organization is dealing with a different set of resources. So every organization is going to tackle that in in a different way. But if you think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs and you think of human resources and building principles that that encourage peak performance in an organization. Most, most, a lot of companies that I work with, their number one priority in an HR function is compliance and following the laws. If you look at that in terms of human motivation, Maslow's hierarchy of human needs, following the laws is the bare minimum, it covers employees up to the psychological and safety peers of that pyramid. And it really keeps employees at that level. What you want to do when you're building a peak performing organization is getting people up to the top of that pyramid. You can call it self-actualization or, you know, creative flow. Um, and the more you, you move employees up to the top of the pyramid, the more each one gets into a peak-performing state, the more the organization or the team can be a peak-performing team. But that means doing a lot more than just meeting the required laws for the state of California or the, the government. It's um, increasing, you know, their need for love and belonging and self-esteem, well-being. Yeah, and so if we can get people to feel energized and safe and we do all of that are there additional things that then once you get that team together that will really help them you know perform at their at their best well i think a lot of it you know is accountability i i don't know a single organization that can be successful or in uh being peak performing if every member isn't 100% accountable for their own actions. And I see that a lot of organizations really struggle in not only defining what accountability is, but creating a culture of accountability. And so if we look at accountability, do we do that through, um, you know, assessments, through measurement? Are we looking at that from, um, you know, where, where do companies really look to to, to I guess, really implement a high amount of accountability uh, within their organizations or their teams? Where do you kind of start first with that? It always starts with the leaders. So even if a core value of a company is accountability, if it's not being exhibited 
through the leadership team, it's not going to be in the culture. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so, so important that leaders are demonstrating those behaviors that we're yeah, not only accountable to each other, but demonstrating that being accountable to our direct reports and to everyone around. So um, right. it's, it's a great point. Uh, well, one of our questions uh, we'd love to ask our guests, so we're getting down here almost to the end, uh, is uh, is there a book that you're reading right now or maybe you recently just finished that you might share with us? Oh, absolutely. So um, right now my favorite book is The Success Principles by Jack Canfield. And ultimately it's, it's a guide for living exponentially. Um, so definitely if you're interested in, in being a peak performer, you're living an exponential life and not a linear one. So it's, it's helping um, readers really tap into their unlimited potential um, so that they can be a peak performer. That sounds like a really interesting book. And as a reminder to everyone, we will have a blog recap of this on our website, peopleg2.com. We'll certainly put a link to that book uh, over to, to Amazon or somewhere if you feel like picking it up and didn't have a chance to, to jot that down. Um, like I said, we're, we're almost out of time here. I want to make sure we do ask you uh, kind of two important questions. The first one is, is you, know, you talked about a lot of different things here. We kind of bounced around a little bit between onboarding and teams and um, uh, you know, accountability. So is there something, if, if somebody was remember one thing that you've talked about today or one thing that you brought up, what was sort of the, the, the top thing or the, that they should have taken away from, from our conversation today? Well, I think, you know, the U.S. is facing a leadership problem that's costing the economy $500 billion if you, you know, quote the Gallup statistics. And each one of us has extraordinary potential to be a leader. And it's what are we doing in our life, you know, to really take action on that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so how can people get a hold of you um, if they're interested in learning more about uh, people innovators or want to learn more about you? Uh, what, what's the best way for them to, to find out more? Uh, they can definitely connect with me through my website, which is peopleinnovators.com, and I'm also on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. Would love to talk more. I have a goal of developing leaders in the foster youth community in Los Angeles. So if there's anybody who wants to partner with me on that, uh, feel free to reach out to me on the peopleinnovators.com. Well, fantastic. Really appreciate you being uh, on the show today and giving our listeners some some great things to think about and um, certainly some ways in which the organization needs to be, to be looking at to, to get better and better. Uh, so hopefully we have you come back at some point, give us an update, and I'd love to learn more about what you're doing with the, with the foster leadership in Los Angeles. Sounds like uh, something fascinating as well. So uh, thanks so much for being on the show. You. Yeah, thank you so much, Chris. All right, we're going to take a quick commercial okay. break, and then we'll come back with our second guest, Sandy Mobley. Imagine buying a newspaper and discovering that the news you're reading is six months old. There isn't much that stays the same for six months. And the same thing goes for background checks. In a time when so much outdated information is being passed around, it's good to know that People G2 offers something different. At People G2, we provide today's intelligence, not yesterday's news. 
Our value-added approach offers you a fully FCRA-compliant solution that includes up-to-the-minute information. By combining industry-leading technology with old-school human investigation, People G2 is able to give you information that is accurate right now, delivered quickly to our online system or integrated with your HR system. So ask yourself, are you comfortable working with old news or are you ready for a different kind of background check company? Visit PeopleG2.com or call 800-630-2880. That's 800-630-2880 or PeopleG2.com. Welcome back to the Talent Talk Radio Show. Uh, if you're joining us, you just missed our uh, last interview with uh, Celine Ford, the people chief people strategist for People Innovators. But uh, now you can listen uh, to us on uh, iTunes. You can check that one out on the, on the podcast, probably up next week. Um, and you can also find all of our past shows there. You can also go to talenttalkradio.com. Um, there really is no excuse to find us. We're, we're all over the place. So uh, hopefully you can uh, dive in some more and uh, enjoy some of the past episodes. Uh, next up on the show is Sandy Mobley, the author of Juicy Work and also the CEO of The Learning Advantage. Um, as a reminder, send us over in your questions uh, on Twitter at PeopleG2 and use that hashtag Talent Talk. But let's go ahead and get Sandy in the door here. Uh, Sandy, welcome. Hi, thanks, Chris. I'm excited to talk about my book and be with you. Yeah, we're excited to have you here and uh, to talk about those things as well. So, yeah, let's maybe uh, if you give us the, the the quick intro on yourself and, of course, talk a little bit about your book. Well, I started out in IT and spent a lot of years doing computer work until I went back to business school and discovered that I could help people change without having to use the technology. So my life story has been my search for juicy work, which now I have as an executive coach doing leadership development and team building with organizations to help create greater engagement and more satisfaction from people at work. And that prompted me to write the book, Juicy Work, about cultivating fruitful careers and cultivating nourishing workplaces where people like to go to work. And so what what can a person do then to, to make their work juicy? That has a has a great sound to it. It's fun it's kind of a fun title to say. So but, but you know, kind of deeper and probably more practically, how do people, you know, actually make their work juicy? Well, there are three elements. One is to be really clear on what your strengths are. And I find in coaching that people take their strengths for granted. They're very aware of development actions, but they don't really recognize how powerful those strengths are. And as a result, they don't leverage them. So often I work with someone who is really good at what they're doing and they're frustrated because their staff don't understand as quickly and as well as they do. And by helping them recognize that that's a unique strength of theirs, they become less upset when people aren't as quick as they are. And it also helps them pinpoint work that they will be uniquely capable to do. So that's the first piece is finding strengths. The second is what you're passionate about. And passionate is something that you think about all the time. You could do it for 24 hours and not be bored. And to find that, I often have people tell me what they did when they were a kid because there tend to be elements of their juicy work in what they did as children. So, for example, I used to bring over the neighborhood kids and I'd organize plays or activities would do. So that's what I do today in team building. 
and kids would seek me out at the playground if they had issues with their teacher or their parents or other kids and ask me for coaching on how they could resolve it. So from the time I was almost very young, I was doing the work I was meant to do. It just took me a long time to weave my way there. So there's three elements. The first are your strengths, the second are your passions, and the third is the kind of environment where you thrive. And many people don't stop and think about the fact that there are different environments. When I went to work at Hewlett Packard, it was a very open culture, and people called each other by their first names all the way up to the CEO. And every idea was important, and it was such a creative organization. And I realized that that was a great fit for me. I didn't realize how much I liked it until I went to another consulting firm where it was very hierarchical. And there you were treated more as a pair of hands. Just do the work. We don't care what you think. And I realized for me that took a lot of my heart out of the work if I couldn't have some input into how we were doing it. So those three elements, your strengths, your passion, and an environment where you're going to thrive, all those contribute to work that really brings you alive. Yeah, those are some um, really kind of poignant, very specific things that people can really think of. And I've always been amazed at how much, and I don't know if, if this is true for the world, but certainly it feels like American society, we are asked and pushed and prodded to focus on our weaknesses or to improve our weaknesses or to get better. It maybe comes from a lot of the self-help type, kind of a generic self-help industry out there that, you know, you're not good at this, you need to work on getting better at that. And maybe there's a few outliers and a few exceptions of that. But generally, if we focus on our strengths and putting ourselves in those opportunities to, to do what we're good at, to do what we love... I, I always felt like the my my weak for me personally my weaknesses to kind of disappeared or other people came around me because they wanted me to follow my strengths and then they brought with them the strengths that complemented my weaknesses and yet and I'm not sure if you've had this sort of that that same kind of um, experience but it just doesn't feel like that's the natural way in which we think about our strengths and weaknesses that someone has to remind us of that and tell us that story before we start thinking that way is that sort of the way in which you kind of came across that? Yeah, I think you're really on to something, Chris. And the Gallup organization has spent years doing research around strengths and positive psychology and focusing on what people are doing well as opposed to focusing on where they're not doing well. And I look at so many organizations where they want people to be good at everything rather than letting them focus on the things that they do the best. And it takes your heart out of it when you spend a third to a half of your time doing things that you're not interested in or well-suited for. And I look at why do we have big organizations with people with diverse skill sets and ways of thinking and then not leverage those differences so that if what you love to do is collaborate with people and do talk shows and you don't like to do all the logistics behind the scene, You hire somebody who's expert at that. They get to do what they love. You get to do what you love. The world's a happier place. Absolutely. If I had to do the logistics stuff for this show, we wouldn't have a show. (laughs) (laughs) I know the feeling. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, you know, what can a a business leader do 
and to have the business work environment really that they have really support a culture of good work and collaboration. Uh, you know, I think most people set up for that to, to want to happen, but are there maybe some practical things that you can identify that might help uh, business leaders really cultivate that the correct environment? Well, I think a key thing is, again, if you go to the Gallup organization, they did research on 12 factors that lead to engagement. They're called the Gallup 12. And one key piece of it is I know what's expected of me at work, which sounds so obvious. Yet many times I find people have nebulous job descriptions and their work either has gaps with other people or it overlaps and they're not clear. So for business leaders to have a clear mission and goal, people know how success is measured in that organization. They know their role in it and how that what they have to do to achieve that. And then third are just the culture and the norms of how that organization operates so that people know what's expected. You probably remember a lot of years ago, Intel under Andy, can't think of his last name at the moment, he had a culture where he wanted people to fight with each other. He felt that arguing and questioning people really brought out the best ideas. So that was a very unique culture where people would take each other on. Whereas at the same time, down the street, Hewlett Packard was a culture of asking questions, building people up, being curious, and not doing direct challenge. In fact, some people felt that HP was not going to be successful because they were too nice and they didn't push each other hard enough to improve. So the leader needs to figure out what kind of culture he wants to create or she wants to create and then help people succeed in that culture, hire people who are suited for it. So don't hire little sheep if you want them to act like wolves. Go for the wolves. Yeah, I mean, as you're kind of talking about hiring, and this is the, the next kind of important question then is, you know, if we can create the right environment, then as we're going to hire, are there maybe, Maybe certain questions that you think leaders, you know, managers or uh, HR department or whoever's sort of overseeing that hiring as they're going through that process, that if they want to try to find the right person who's got the right skill set, who's, you know, ready to, to have that juicy work. What are some of the things you think they, sh- they should be doing? Well, there are a couple of things. When you ask people, do they like to do X or Y, and they're looking for the job, they're not going to say, uh, no, not really. So instead, ask, what's a situation at work in your past when you were completely excited, engaged, and fully yourself at work? What happened? What was going on? And then just really listen. So if the person's talking about, we had a challenging goal and a very short deadline and limited resources, and the team pulled together, we worked late into the night to figure it out. We supported each other. And at the end, we made such a difference for the company because we were able to reach that goal. Then right away, you get a sense. Here's someone who likes to work collaboratively, who likes a challenging assignment, who isn't afraid to work hard. So you pick up a lot when you ask that kind of question as opposed to tell me how you feel about difficult projects. Because the average interviewer who's thinking at all is going to say, well, I love solving difficult problems. 
So it's when you prompt people, you get the response that they're, they think you're looking for versus if you just make it wide open and say, tell me about a time when you were most effective. What were you doing? Yeah, and, and then we could probably, to be fair, flip this question on its on its head here and say, well, what should the job seeker, what should you know, people who are in transition or look considering a new position, what should they be asking um, so they can make sure that this is the right place for them? Well, there are a couple of things that I have people think about, and I say, tell me about the kind of environment where you've been most successful. What was the boss like? And if they say, well, my boss was someone who was very detail-oriented and gave me lots of specific assignments and told me what to do and how to do it, then that tells me they want a boss that others might find to be somewhat controlling or micromanaging. But for that person, that's the kind of boss they like. Or if they say the best boss for me was someone who gave me the broad goal and then trusted me to figure out how to do it. That's another kind. And I say, well, what kind of coworkers do you like? And many people don't stop and think about it. So I have a whole questionnaire that I use, like, do you like coworkers who challenge you? Do you want to be in a competitive organization? Like many of the consulting firms have an up or out policy. So would they be comfortable in a place where they know that if they don't excel, they're going to be gone? Do they like to collaborate? Do they like people who are really smart? Do they like people who are quiet and introverted? Do they like a fun workplace? Do they like to be evaluated on the merits of their work? Or do they like a group, more of a group reward? So I tease out all different kinds of elements of what might be important, and then I have them interview for that. So say they decide that the kind of boss they like gives them a lot of rope and lets them run with it. Then I suggest that when they're interviewing that boss, they say, tell me about the best employees that have ever worked for you. What were they like? And if you hear back some of those things that they showed initiative, that they were able to figure things out on their own, that they brought me ideas that I hadn't even thought of, then you're pretty sure that's going to be a good match. And do that with all aspects of the job. Yeah, and and that's really important to think about. And I, I when I have sort of coached um, people in transition, and I, you know, it's, it's just shocking to me that they don't have a maybe a list of questions ready about the company or about the manager or about the job they may be doing. It's, you know, what can I tell you so you'll hire me? Not what can the employer tell me so I can make sure this is going to be a great fit for me and. Uh, it, it, and then they get it in there, and then maybe they're not happy. And that's uh, we spend so many hours at, at work in our lives that um, it's probably more important that we like the people we work with than, than maybe even our, our neighbors or some other people that we maybe even think about in a deeper way. So um, That makes a lot of sense. It does, because also I believe our life force comes out through our work, that it's our mission to do certain things. And if we're not in an environment where we can do what we're meant to do, a little bit of us dies every day. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think we can all resonate to jobs that just weren't good fits and how hard it was to motivate yourself to go to work, knowing that it wasn't something that you felt committed to or enjoyed or were particularly good at. 
And, and and so if we want to have this, you know, kind of great culture, this great place that we're going to work and we expect these behaviors, are there, are, is, there, is there a mindset? Is there is there something that the organization needs to be thinking about or, you know, kind of living and breathing to really make sure they're productive and uh, ensuring that people are taking whatever it is that they're creating to its fullest extent, that they're getting the maximum benefit? Hmm, I think there are a couple of things. One mindset is that work should be enjoyable. The second is that you should do work that you're good at rather than having the mindset that you should do things that you're not good at. Like one organization I work in moves people every two years. So just as they're becoming competent in one role, they're moved to another. So they never feel the sense of mastery. I think also the organization can connect how happy employees directly relate to happy customers. There's a ton of research that shows that employees will not treat customers better than they're being treated. So it's not just a nice thing to do. It goes right to the bottom line. You treat your employees well, they'll treat the customers well. And they'll do things that matter. So I think that's a big piece of it as well, having a mission that people care about and that's their mission. There's not a one-size-fits-all. Yeah, and and it can really be um, a, a pretty big project, right? I mean, the larger your organization gets, maybe the larger, the bigger problem it's going to be, but I shouldn't say problem, bigger opportunity <laughs> for you mm-hmm. to to go in there and, and make a difference. But uh, it does feel like something that has to be intentional, has to be really well thought out and and clear. I mean, you mentioned uh, Gallup 12, and one of those things that what's expected of me. I mean, that's a lot of times I see that organizations don't adequately um, communicate what's expected from a cultural standpoint, um, from a motivation standpoint, to create those things for their employees um, at, at all. They just sort of, you're just supposed to figure it out. You're just supposed to pick it up. You're That one time you had lunch with the CEO, you're supposed to magically have you know, picked up everything they want you to do, and it maybe doesn't quite carry through. Have you seen that happen very often? Oh, my gosh. I've seen so many people make career detonating moves in their first week. I was just working on a webinar on helping coaches prepare people to enter a new environment. And often when people go to a new job, their goal is to show the company that they made the right decision when they hired them. So I'm thinking of one woman I was working with who is an expert in marketing, and she was brought into the company, and immediately she went to work looking at how she could add value, which was a great thing. Then they bring her into a meeting, and she starts to trash all of the things that had been done before, showing how much value she could add. Well, this wasn't a culture where people trashed others' ideas. They would support them and say, and have you thought about doing it this way? rather than, that will never work, that's a bad idea. So although she had all of the intellectual and experiential skills to be successful, she hadn't gotten the culture right. Right. And it took her a long time. She was always remembered as the woman with sharp elbows who was abrasive, even though she changed her behavior very rapidly when she saw what a mistake that was. It took her weeks and months to overcome that first bad perception 
And that can be tough. I mean, it's um, sometimes we walk in and we want we're tentative in those things, and sometimes we we want to really be seen. We want to be noticed. We want you know to set a good tone. And then if we make that misstep, you're right, it can be a real challenge. And um, and unfortunately, I think I noticed that that those types of um, uh, maybe that kind of a scenario that you just described might be far more likely uh, to happen for women than for men. Um, there might be that that bigger sort of um, maybe have gotten on her right away you know she made that change in behavior that label would have stuck where I don't always see that uh, you know when you kind of flip some of those gender roles so I, I notice some of the best organizations are sort of conscious about and talking about our perceptions and looking at gender roles and how that even uh, plays a part in our decision making and our whole process as well is that something that you're ever kind of talking about or, or, or playing in as, as well always I suggest that when people go to a new company that they watch and they listen and they take notes and observe and they build relationships first because if you have strong relationships, people will prevent you from stepping on your tongue. If you don't have strong relationships, they're going to sit back and they're going to watch you go down because you've irritated them or you've come in behaving too arrogantly. Yeah, and, and even when we're strong and we're animated and we're our best selves, we you know being arro- being arrogant or at least being perceived as arrogant or as well is is generally going to be a deal crusher. It is. <laughs> it, it doesn't when you come in the door, right? That. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I'm wondering uh, one of our favorite questions to ask our guests, and hopefully you have a fantastic answer for us. Is um, is there a book that you're reading right now, or maybe you recently finished that uh, you might tell us about? Well, I usually keep three or four books around all the time that I read on. I don't like to sit down and just read one from cover to cover. I wait to get some inspiration. So one that I'm reading has been Grit, about being perseverant and how people who are committed and successful have an extra element of that perseverance that gets them through difficult situations that they don't give up. And then another book I've been, I keep nearby is called Happiness at Work. And this is a beautiful book because it helps us look at our perceptions. What the author says is not to judge is something good or is something bad. Just notice it because in time, some of the things that we think are bad turn out to be good and some of the things we think are good turn out to be bad. I'll give you an example. I was working, my first job out of college was working for a company where I was doing systems engineering. And within three months, the major company wrote off our division and I was out of a job. And I had to leave my home in Dallas and all my friends and move to Boston to work for another larger company. So I thought this was bad. But in reality, it was good because it opened me up to other possibilities that never would have occurred if I'd stayed in Dallas. And it gave me clarity on what I like to do and what I don't like to do. And for the first job right out of the school to end in three months made me resilient and flexible. So I didn't expect that I was going to join a company and be a lifer because I knew that that was completely out of my control. So the book about happiness at work helps you think about things in such a useful way 
that keeps you open, open-hearted to the possibilities rather than clamping down on, oh, that's terrible, I'll never recover, and going into that awful, awfulizing loop. Yeah, absolutely, and it sounds like a really interesting book that listeners may want to check out. Um, we're almost at the end here. I want to make sure we ask you, uh, how can people get a hold of you? How can they learn more about uh, the Learning Advantage? And, of course, uh, where can they find you, your book, Juicy Work? Well, Amazon has Juicy Work, so it's easy to get on your Kindle or hard copy. And my website is learningadvantageinc.com. LearningAdvantageInc.com. Well, I'm sure people will want to check that out. Hopefully, they'll also go and buy your book. Um, I really appreciate uh, you being on the show with us today, Sandy, and giving all of our uh, listeners a lot of great insights. Uh, hopefully, we have you come back at some point, give us an update, maybe with your next book or whatever that may be. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate the opportunity. All right. Thank you to both my guests for being on the show today and uh, everyone for tuning in to listen. I uh, hope you gained uh, something you can use in your own career. Uh, next week, we're going to have uh, author uh, Danny Kellerman. He's also the uh, former uh, CHRO of Panasonic and is now a talent management professor, professional with uh, ICF uh, accredited coach. And then we'll have uh, Riva Lazanowski, CEO, founder, and president of uh, Grow Biz Media. So until then, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today. You've been listening to Talent Talk Radio, brought to you by People G2.